Joyce Carol Oates once asked, if the city is a text, how shall we read it? The question of the legibility of the London cityscape, its visibilities, its invisibilities, what we each subjectively experience, and also how available that experience might be to aesthetic articulation, has, of course, a plethora of different answers. For modernist writers like Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, Ford Maddox Ford and Catherine Mansfield, London represented, as Sebastian Gruss writes in his study The Making of London, a city, quote, that is a wandering maze of endless possibilities, a site in between dream and idea, and provides us with a spiritual landscape profoundly intertwined with the modern experience and consciousness. But what is London now in 2017, at a time of change and uncertainty? of expanding fissures in our social and political life and bewildering harbingers of eco-catastrophic futurity? How should or can we read uh, the palimpsest of textualised, felt and lived London? As Ian Sinclair suggests in an essay um, he published in March this year for the LRB, The Last London, and I quote, So when I think I'm moving across a city of memories where I have lived and worked for 50 years, I find that very soon I lose the markers by which I have navigated, the beacons by which I know myself. Like John Clare leaving the tight circle of experience around the village of Helpston, then in Northamptonshire, I step out of my knowledge to the tottering edge of an abyss known as the future or the human contract. <coughs> For Sinclair, this abyss divides the city of London between the pre-digital and what he calls the smart city, with its neoliberal wealth generators, the invisibilisation of the homeless and the economically unproductive, its consumerist safeness, moronic gentrification and its broken social contract. In the fugue of London walking, he writes, real feet on unreal ground. We have to deal with that sense of groundlessness, striding faster and faster in anticipation of a bigger fall, weaving hard to avoid the committed heads-down texters and tweeters who seem to be programmed for impact, and perhaps they deserve it. But for Sinclair, London's endgame has, has been imagined for some time now. He traces it back through Patrick Kyler's 1994 film, London, which imagines the hollowing out of working-class communities in areas like Kensington and Chelsea, and something, of course, which has recently become both very poignant and also urgent, given the Grenfell Tower uh, fire last month, which um, made visible the area's poverty, precariousness, issues around social housing, social cleansing, and what David Lammy rightly calls the council's corporate manslaughter of its own citizens. But Sinclair also references Derek Jarman's 1988 film, The Last of England, which depicts working-class culture that's already fading and vanishing from view in this haunting collage of home movies and inner-city decay. So, in fact, London's apocalyptic endgame stretches back even further than this, and further than the Victorian naturalist Richard Jeffreys' After London from 1885 that Sinclair also references. A good place to start when thinking about apocalyptic visions of the City of London, then, would be, of course, the Great Fire. Uh, sorry, the Great Fire, but also the Great Plague um, of 1665. An interesting account of the plague can be found in Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year, which is partly documentary evidence that Defoe uncovered in his career as a journalist. So he includes things like graphs, statistical data, parish records, and so on. But it's also blended with fictional constructs, such as the narrator, with frequent digressions from the story. And so Defoe's account, I think, quite nicely brings to life an idea that has been discussed in panels already and that I'd like to draw through. The idea of London, um, not only at a time of apocalyptic horror and tragedy, but also that blends the realistic and the fantastical elements together. And there's even what you might now call a science fictional element to Defoe's journal, when the narrator recounts how people claim to have seen, quote, a blazing star or comet appeared for several months before the plague, as there did the year after another a little before the fire. Sorry. Um, and a similarly real apocalypse is depicted in John Martin's famous oil painting from 1822, which I think I put in the wrong order. Uh, apologies if you can't see that too clearly. And this depicts the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And in the foreground, uh, if you can imagine, perhaps if you can't actually see, um, we can see survivors fleeing the destruction. And the canvas is dominated by these billowing large clouds of red lava, ash and dust, dotted with uh, strikes of lightning. The biblical scale of this apocalypse caught the popular imagination of 19th century poets, artists and readers alike. 
Literary and visual culture at the time, then, was awash with interpretations of Pompeii, which were depicted as anticipating the last days and judgment. And this connection between apocalypse or catastrophe and biblical judgment is crucial, but it also conflates two different meanings of the term apocalypse, uh, as, as shown here. The 14th century meaning of revelation and disclosure from um, the church Latin term apocalypsis, and that in turn derives from the ancient Greek um, for the word which both means uh, a lifting of the veil and also a kind of revelation. But then, of course, there's the use of the apocalypse in more recent cultural um, denomination, which means a cataclysmic event, uh, and that's something I'd like to focus on. If we want to think about the various apocalyptic visions of speculative near and distant future Londons in literary representation, then I think we need to kind of remember this dual meaning of the term apocalypse, both catastrophe in its modern usage, but also unveiling in the ancient Greek. And this, of course, implies some kind of moral message in stories of burning, flooded or pandemic future Londons, a critique of the present day conditions of the author and the, the implied or the contemporary reader. That, speculate, uh, sorry, that speculative visions are uniquely privileged in being able to deliver. Frank Commode referred to this apocalyptic imaginary in the sense of an ending from 1967, and he called it our deep need for intelligible ends, our need to project ourselves past the end so as to see the structure whole, a thing we cannot do from our spot of time in the middle. So apocalyptic narratives raise an interesting question in terms of genre. And I'm using for today's talk the term armchair apocalypse. I'm, I'm using it in a, in a kind of slightly comic but also a fairly serious kind of way. And I'm particularly interested uh, in this slippage between the comic and the apocalyptic. And I would suggest this is something that's so far been pretty much overlooked in, in a burgeoning um, and growing uh, field of apocalyptic studies, if, if that's what we call it. And I'm borrowing, of course, here from the term um, the cosy catastrophe, first introduced by Brian Aldiss in his uh, text Billion Years Spree, which describes a peculiarly English or British version of the disaster story exemplified in the novels of John Wyndham and John Christopher. The essence of the cosy catastrophe, Aldiss writes, is that the hero should have a pretty good time, a girl, free sweets at the Savoy, automobiles for the taking whilst everyone else is dying off. And as the um, science fiction writer Joe Walton notes in a 2005 article, the cosy catastrophe then has six notable characteristics, that these are primarily British and that they're usually written in the post-war period between 1951 to 77, that these writers do not concern themselves with questions of plausibility, that nothing really happens in the cosy catastrophe and I think number four perhaps is the most important, that despite being written during the Cold War, nuclear weapons are quite specifically a banned topic. There's no context um, in historical terms. <coughs> that these narratives focus on a school, uh, small group of people. And finally, that the catastrophe itself is rarely actually the main focus of the narrative. And of course... With these 30-something affluent, educated, professional um, male protagonists, this particular view um, is exclusively patriarchal, heteronormative, bourgeois and Western. Many scholars of science fiction have rightly criticised the unthinking, masculinist, liberal humanism which features and also survives in these kinds of texts. Um, and I don't have time to rehearse them here, but they are important, obviously. But in thinking more critically about this idea of armchair apocalypse and where it departs or takes its point of departure from Aldous's cosy catastrophe, I'd like to raise this point about the reader's participation in the armchair apocalypse offered by narratives of London's destruction. And I'd like to tease out some provocative questions which could help us reflect on genre and readerly expectations. Or, uh, questions on the enjoyment of this kind of subgenre, but also the political or ethical questions embedded in these, embedded, sorry, in these narratives. And these include questions like, are we simply supposed to enjoy these fictions? Or does our enjoyment somehow become complicated in a game of recognition, implication, and subsequently um, of uncomfortable realisation that, like the protagonists, we, the readers, are similarly responsible for the crises that we're enjoying reading about so much. And so I'd like to try and cover three specific questions uh, in this talk. 
Firstly, that is, why do we seem to enjoy destroying London so much over and over again? Secondly, what does our vicarious reading experience of the London-based apocalypse teach us? And I suppose, relatedly, um, drawing on questions of hope and whimsy in our previous authors' panel, what hope is there for the post-apocalyptic future of the city? And then finally, um, in choosing London as the specific setting or locale, how do these works of fiction blend the real and the science fictional? That is to say, what is their effect of topographical specificity in these texts? Um, and what, what does it mean that they give us recognisable place names, ordinary streets and iconic London landmarks? Studies of um, post-apocalyptic literature usually invoke Mary Shelley's The Last Man as the subgenre's originary text. Shelley's three-volume novel relates a chilling, future-oriented story of global pandemic that wipes out most of humanity and is witnessed. Let's not forget you have to have a witness, a narrator, survivor, in order to detail the apocalypse, um, by this protagonist who is somehow immune to the plague. Shelley's story moves around the English countryside but returns time and again to London as the best indicator of the extent of societal collapse. As the population dwindles, the narrator, Lionel Verney, the last man, makes um, preparations to try and set up a fortified compound of survivors at Windsor Castle, and I quote, "'Some from among the family of man must survive, and these should be among the survivors.' That should be my task. To accomplish it, my own life were a small sacrifice. Then, there, in that castle, in Windsor Castle, should be the haven and retreat for the wrecked bark of human society. Its forest should be our world, its garden afford us food. Within its walls, I would establish the shaken throne of health. But ultimately, of course, these plans are thwarted, and Verney is left as the lone survivor in the novel, wandering the world in sublime romantic isolation, like Frankenstein's outcast creature or Coleridge's ancient mariner. And whilst we now look back at Shelley's novel as the first in a growing number of texts dedicated to the imagination of the destruction of mankind, it's interesting to note that contemporary reviewers considered the book to be sickening. They said it was as diseased as its subject matter and it was full of stupid cruelties. And yet, during the course of the story, Shelley's first-person narrator enacts what I would suggest is an interesting narratorial game with the reader, at once suggesting the horrors of the cataclysmic pandemic, but also absolving himself of any kind of responsibility or even any ability to relate these apocalyptic events. And so this dialectic between revelation and concealment of the awful facts of the plague um, serves, in fact, to spur on our readerly curiosity. Uh, as, I, as I quote, it would be needless, he says, to narrate those disastrous occurrences for which a parallel might be found in any slighter visitation of our gigantic calamity. Does the reader wish to hear of the pest houses where death is the comforter, of the mournful passage of the death cart, of the insensibility of the worthless and the anguish of the loving heart, of harrowing shrieks and silence dire, of the variety of disease, desertion, famine, despair and death? Yes, we don't. Yes, we do. We actually do want to hear about these things. What's wrong with us? And of course, we find a similarly absent or even missing account of dereliction and apocalyptic collapse in Richard Jeffrey's apocalyptic novel I mentioned a moment ago, After London or Wild England. The novel is set after a mysterious natural cataclysm. It's really not explained. There's about a line that says it's something to do with the blockage of London's drains and sewers. Uh, and the fact that they haven't been doing enough dredging. And so suddenly everything becomes blocked and the sea levels rise and most of England becomes um, a kind of lake and floods. And this mystery about the causes of the cataclysm is also ensured by the loss of literacy and the loss of historical records, since most of the educated populace literally jump ship and secure passage to the New World or perhaps back to Europe. And so um, what we're left with is, is really a, a lumpen proletariat, English class of labourers, um, agricultural workers, and literacy is quickly, um, it quickly vanishes. And so several uh, centuries into the distant future, after London ended, the country has slid backwards into barbarism, a neo-feudal society living in fortified compounds. And Jeffries, of course, was known as a nature writer, known for his essays about natural history in rural communities, including texts like The Gamekeeper at Home, Nature near London, and perhaps my uh, favourite, The Life of the Fields. 
So it's not surprising, I guess, that much of After London focuses on the landscape of the future rather than the causes of the apocalypse. It gives us a post-industrial England which is verdant and strikingly beautiful. As the narrator observes, quote, it became green everywhere in the first spring after London ended. And it's hard not to reflect on Geoffrey's gleeful destruction of Victorian England with London as the dirty, throbbing heartbeat of colonial power and worldwide domination. What better way to critique the city's sense of its own self-importance in the late 19th century than just simply to wipe it out, to remove all traces of its existence and replace it with teeming meadows, lakes lush with returned wildlife and proliferating vegetation. And whilst we receive a substantively different kind of apocalyptic destruction of London in H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, we can trace a similar authorial critique of the contemporary late Victorian socio-political life. Wells's apocalypse is caused not by natural disaster, but rather by an external agency, the Martians. They arrive, uh, as you may not be able to see there, in comet-like falling stars, um, which in fact turn out to be cylinders, um, which are seen over Winchester, Berkshire, Surrey and Middlesex, and include the narrator's own location at Horsell Common near Woking. As he describes, quote... And this thing I saw, how can I describe it? A monstrous tripod higher than many houses, striding over the, the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine of glittering metal striding now across the heather, articulated ropes of steel dangling from it and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. Here, the glittering metal of the Martian's technology reflects light in a terrifying way and emphasises this superior technological capability that the Martians have over humanity. Humans are reduced to fleeing like beetles or ants, and Wells's success in the novel is to reverse our sense of British imperial superiority, placing Britons in the position of a subjugated race colonised by Martian invaders. The unquestionable superiority of the Martians is asserted as the narrator caustically remarks, we men, with our bicycles and our road skates, our Lilenthal soaring machines, um, which means paragliders, our guns and sticks and so forth, are just in the beginning of the evolution that the Martians have worked out. And although much of the action in War of the Worlds occurs um, across the southeast through Surrey and the suburbs, central London's dense population makes it the perfect stage upon which Wells can imagine the apocalyptic scenes of utter chaos at the hands of the Martian tripods and their devastating ray guns. Wells' strategy of prosaic realism is what made the scene so terrifying to his late Victorian readership, but it's also the reason why they enjoyed it so much. By naming specific geographical locations of destruction across the southeast. He brings this terrifying otherworldly battle literally into our homes, into the gardens and town centres of the ordinary people in Surrey, Wimbledon, Richmond, central London. But he also animates a discernible dislike of the southwest London suburbs of the 1890s with their prim morality, narrow mindedness, and their parochialism. As one critic suggests, quote, Wells himself lived in Woking. The complacent, sleepy, self-satisfied people he describes were his neighbours. <laughs> and this palpable authorial pleasure in ravaging southeast England's uptight suburbs translates into a readerly pleasure of virtuosity, of the virtuosity with which he accomplishes this terrifying Martian destruction. But it also connects to the moral lesson in The War of the Worlds, which stages an apocalyptic comeuppance to smug Victorian colonialism, in its subjugation of humanity to this superior Martian force. Surely, Wells' narrator concludes, if we have learned nothing else, this war with the Martians has taught us to pity, pity for those witless souls that suffer our dominion. And the ruthless destruction of London in Wells' Martian invasion inspired another writer, M.P. Scheele, whose story, The Purple Cloud, um, first serialised in Royal Magazine in 1901, destroys London in um, what I would suggest is an equally imaginative and enjoyable way. The Purple Cloud tells the story of Adam Jefferson, um, a doctor with a private practice on Harley Street. He becomes really obsessed with pole fever at the time, and he joins an Arctic expedition. And whilst he's there, 
um, trying to reach the pole, this mysterious, um, vaporous, um, uh, sorry, uh, liquid purple cloud um, encircles the earth, washes over everything, and asphyxiates everyone and wipes out pretty much humanity. Um, and, and, of course, there are kind of real historical um, connections here with the famous Krakatoa eruption of 1883 um, and references to arsenic and the smell of peaches. So Adam alone is saved by virtue of the fact that below the freezing temperatures at the North Pole, the vapour um, liquidises uh, and cannot reach him. And so on finding all of his fellow expedition crew dead, Adam sets out to return to Europe and on the way, he encounters numerous ghost ships, whalers, barges, dredgers, frigates, and they're all full of dead crew. He drifts across the North Sea, describing it as a liquid cemetery. Um, and then reaching Dover, he drives to London, he sort of commandeers an empty train and heads off to the capital and notices how the exuberant vegetation has burgeoned in just a few short months, uh, recalling, of course, Jeffrey's naturalist vision in After London. And after travelling around to try and work out whether he really is the last man on earth, he, he comes to London and he really lapses into a delirious kind of state. The, the good uh, white powers and the bad or black powers are wrestling with his soul um, and he sort of um, drifts through the finer houses and shops of London and starts to dress in, in the kind of cosy catastrophe luxury clothing. Um, and and I, I should point out it is quite a racist text and critics do say that. He assumes the model of an imperial sultan, which he imagines to be the most decadent kind of orientalism appropriate to this apocalyptic scenario, declaring that he will ravage and riot in my kingdom like the late Caesars of Rome. Jefferson then um, assumes this kind of monarchical subjectivity, and he decides to destroy London by laying a series of bombs with homemade time fuses. And on the night of the bombing, um, it's described in the first-person narration as a gargantuan orgy, uh, and I quote, Looking directly south, I could recline at ease in the red velvet easy chair and see. Soon after midnight, there was a sudden and very visible increase in the conflagration. On all hands, I began to see blazing structures soar with grand hurrahs on high in his head. <laughs> In fives and tens, in twenties and thirties, all between me and the remote limit of my vision, they leapt. They lingered long, they fell. My spirit more and more felt and danced. Deeper mysteries of sensation, sweeter thrills. I sit exquisitely. I drew out enjoyment leisurely. And so this is the ultimate armchair apocalypse. Dressed in what he thinks is a, is a sultan's outfit, succumbing to encroaching derangement, um, Shields' narrator literally sits in a red velvet armchair and watches the chaos that he has caused unfold, having set his network of homemade bombs across central London. And shortly after this passage, he even plays Wagner's Valkurenritz, the ride of the Valkyries, on a nearby harp, how convenient, before passing out in a gluttony of orgiastic devastation. And so Jefferson's pleasure at this moment in the purple cloud is obvious. Um, but what about our pleasure as readers? In his influential study, Aesthetic Experience and Literary Hermeneutics, Hans Robert Yaust defines the aesthetic pleasure that comes from the reading experience in the following terms. Um, I'm not sure whether I've got it here, but anyway. The subject always enjoys more than it itself, he says. It experiences itself as it appropriates an experience of the meaning of the world, which both its own productive activity and the reception of the experience of the other can disclose. And the assent of third parties can confirm. Aesthetic enjoyment that thus occurs in a state of balance between disinterested contemplation and testing participation is a mode of experiencing oneself in a possible being other than that which the aesthetic attitude opens up. So, why have I given you a relatively dry quote from reader response theory in the 1980s? What he's saying, I think, is that our readerly pleasure is greater when engaging with a text that enables us to contemplate something that reaches beyond the simple, well, not simple if you're an author, obviously, but the surface level of style, of form, plot, characterisation, and so on. And it invites our active participation in a different way of being, that relationship or experience of the other to our own subject position. That is, it raises ontological questions beyond our own narrow, narrow um, experience. And so, according to Yaus's categorisation, and this has been really influential in reader response um, theory and reception criticism, the aesthetic pleasure of reading is experienced across two different hermeneutic levels. 
the first of which he calls the language critical level, the language of structure, style, the use of language, form, and so on, which we enjoy as a beautiful textual um, um, product, if you like. And the second is what he calls the cosmological level, in which the reader understands the text's broader significance within cultural history. So readers then will achieve a more fully realised aesthetic experience when they feel that the text responds to both levels, the linguistic and the cosmological. And so our aesthetic pleasure translates, hopefully, into a self-reflective critical awareness. And so returning to the question of armchair apocalypse, I would suggest we might identify two textual levels. The first of which then would be the level of the story itself. So in our case of Jefferson, that's his pleasure at destroying London in such mellifluous and a grand way. And the reasons he wants to destroy London, because it symbolises progress, civilization, that acme of Victorian achievement, uh, and so on. But then there's a second level, and this refers us back to our own position as readers. And in Shields' novel in particular, we occupy our own armchair subject position. We experience the confusion of pleasure at reading this account of Apocalypse. And so, in its combination of structuralist approaches with this investigation of self, the self-reflexiveness, classical reader response theory would posit that our subjective desire for particular kinds of stories or what Norman and Holland called our psychological need, is therefore generated by a desire to know ourselves. And this kind of approach foregrounds the horizon of readerly expectations in trying to understand how particular texts are valued, enjoyed or appreciated. And as such, I think it's actually quite consonant with um, science fiction and genre studies, which similarly reflect on reader responses, expectations, um, the horizon of expectations, you might say. But it also um, accords with creative writing pedagogy, as Linda Anderson has says, and I quote, stories conforming to a specific genre are often regarded as a lesser type of writing, and yet generic expectation within the reader is an important tool to be exploited as a writer. Genre is a dynamic aspect of writing and reading, not just a pejorative label placed upon certain types of writing. Um, and then she goes on to say, it's this play with generic expectations that often fuels the reader's reading enjoyment. Okay, so, so far, so good, maybe. We've established that apocalyptic texts may arouse aesthetic pleasure in the reader, as well as, uh, or as a result of stimulating our critical faculties and perhaps raising complex moral questions with regards to extra subjective or other ontological positions. And we've also seen that readers enjoy this game of generic identification, of looking for genre and seeing where it's subverted or played with, tracking the codes of particular kinds of genre. But this still doesn't quite get at the heart of what I'm after when I'm thinking through the armchair apocalypse. This is an illustration from Shields' The Purple Cloud. This is the moment itself in the red velvet easy chair. And that is, I think, the subversive and the irreverent pleasure of the delicious awfulness of Apocalypse, this grand melodrama that ends everything, and also, of course, the eccentricities of which details writers choose to record, what in their mind represents the continuation of any kind of banal normalcy, and what could illustrate the complete collapse of civilization. And as you track them across a number of texts, it's quite interesting to see how they differ in this regard. And I suppose what I'm saying is that I'd like us to consider an irreverent reading of the canonical works of apocalyptic London literature. We know their moral tales. We know their warnings of impending disaster, whether these are ecological, it's our fault, right, as a result of capitalist overproduction, of consumption, of the degradation of the environment, or whether the disaster is caused by alien invasion, which is, again, usually our fault because we didn't successfully negotiate with the aliens, or even perhaps at the hands of a nuclear holocaust. Yet again, that's our fault again, of course, for escalating geopolitical tensions to the point of annihilation. And in turning our attention to this irreverence of the delight and the pleasure that we enjoy these visions of destroying London, I think Susan Sontag might be the best critical guide. In her essay, The Imagination of Disaster, from 1965, she describes the pleasure of watching science fiction B-movies of the 1960s and, uh, 50s and 60s as what she calls a primitive gratification. Classic monster movies such as King Kong see their terrifying non-human antagonists always headed, she says, for the great city, where they had to do a fair bit of rampaging, hurling buses off bridges, 
crumbling trains in their bare hands and toppling buildings and so forth. And so the lure of such generalised disaster um, is that it releases one from um, the normal obligations, she says. And so you always have that great scene with New York or London or Tokyo discovered empty, its population annihilated. And here then we are introduced to the fantasy of occupying the deserted city and starting all over again, Robinson Crusoe, on a worldwide scale. And so our irreverent reading of M.P. Shields' own um, pretty irreverent text, I would say, might help us then to pass the textual and perhaps the moral implications that this novel brings to light. And there's that key quotation again. The pleasure is obvious on the part of Shields' deranged protagonist, and this text has deviated substantially from the canonical apocalyptic new beginnings inaugurated with John of Patmos's vision, um, you'll remember from the Book of Revelation. And whilst um, Shields' novel is an obvious example of um, the kinds of degeneration theories popular in this period and has been read as harking back to kind of Zoroastrianism and pre-Christian ethics and so on, I happen to think this is a bit of an overgenerous reading. Um, I think actually... Uh, the fact that the, at the end of the novel um, he finds one other person surviving on earth and guess what, she's young, she's attractive, she's nubile, she's going to be her, uh, his Eve to, to him as Adam and he is of course literally called Adam and he continues to roam and dodge the purple cloud. Um, I think this is a fairly irreverent text. And so according to this reading then we might suggest that the purple cloud is a popular novel ahead of its time Indeed, with its inviting shellers, uh, cellars sorry, of champagne, its luxurious empty mansions, the lack of much plot, really, in favour of a general sense of decadence and abandon, the novel conforms actually quite closely to that earlier model of Aldous's cosy catastrophe. The, the story when the hero has a pretty good time, gets the girl while everyone else dies off. And John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids is, of course, the exemplary text here, although Wyndham himself preferred the term logical fantasy to cosy catastrophe because he emphasised, and this is perhaps important to remember, that there is a logical aspect to this extrapolation, and he wanted that to be clear. He takes the real-world situation of the 1950s and logically calculates a possible future with Triffids. And so, as you may well know, the Triffids then, um, it begins with this mysterious comet which lands and causes blindness in most of the population, only a few exceptions, including our narrator Bill Mason. Uh, this leads, of course, to anarchy, scavenging, new gangs, all of the good stuff that we look for in apocalyptic narratives. But also um, an interesting kind of play on Cold War geopolitics at the time, where the, uh, the nation states are sort of blaming one another. The Americans are blaming the Russians for developing weapons. No one's quite sure uh, how the Triffids arrived. And, and actually, um, they're, they're a genetically modified source of, of energy. It's a new kind of petrochemical that can more cheaply produce all of our um, uh, consumable needs. And Wyndham characters ponder this question of uh, what Susan Sontag called returning to the primitive, and they use London and its real streets and locations to think about this loss of civilization. And I quote, London still contrived, this is in the early days of the apocalypse, to give the impression that a touch of the magic wand would bring it to life again, though many of the vehicles in the streets were beginning to turn rusty. A year later, the change was more noticeable. Large patches of plaster detached from house fronts had begun to litter the pavements. Dislodged tiles and chimney pots could be found in the streets. And then a little bit later on, uh, even further in this near future, once, not that year, nor the next, but later on, I stood in Piccadilly Circus, again looking round at the desolation and trying to recreate in my mind's eye the crowds that once swarmed there. I could no longer do it. Even in my memory, they lacked reality. There was no tincture of them now. They had become as much a backcloth of history as the audiences in the Roman Colosseum or the army of the Assyrians, and somehow just as far removed. However, for Wyndham's protagonists, Bill and Josella, the countryside beyond London, down in the southeast, offers hope and the chance of a fresh start. Bill feels a new lease of life. The apocalypse has actually improved his life, and this is a, a strange trope I keep finding in these novels. 
He, he doesn't have to work in a job he hates anymore. He doesn't work in this large company. He gets this sense of purpose and energy. Remember that kind of Robinson Crusoe sense of starting again, building from the bottom up, planting vegetables, learning how to till the soil. As he says, the open country was not like the towns, sterile, stopped forever. It was a place one could work and tend and still find a future. So in this world of emptied out cities, of darkness, no more electricity, no more lighting, of the inescapability of running out of resources like coal and petrol in a few short years, these characters have to actually teach themselves things like farming from books that they have to recover and they have to learn how to be self-sufficient. So does the apocalypse actually improve the world? I think the most striking thing about Day of the Triffids is the way um, in which their lives are improved, as, I, as I've described. London might be the dark and ghost city of civilization's past, but the novel ends with a little group moving to a new colony on the Isle of Wight, which is described as an island haven, where people are trying to build something new and something better. Similarly, Doris Lessing's apocalyptic novel, Memoirs of a Survivor, and this is a couple of frames from the TV adaptation, also offers some curiously positive or even proto-utopian ciphers of a world improved by apocalyptic um, collapse. It's a very strange, interesting, surreal novel from her kind of inner space fiction, fi fiction period in the 60s and 70s, combining bits of psychoanalysis, Lanyon psychiatry, in this sort of psychopolitics. It's a critique of consumerist capitalism. And it features this anonymous, quite passive narrator who represents the bourgeois middle class, the older generation, um, who's witnessing this decline from her small London flat. I should point out, London is never named, but critics just seem to assume it's London. So I felt safe enough to raise it as an example. And so down on the streets below, there are tribes of post-apocalyptic gangs of youth um, that are threatening these older residents. And if we leave aside some of the more wacky aspects of the novel, uh, the ending, which contains a kind of ascent into the oneness of theosophical Sufism, it's all very astral, we could just pick up perhaps on the, on the advantages of apocalyptic rupture through these gangs of children and the lower class neighbours who have now moved into what used to be quite a middle class uh, block of flats. And reflecting from the comfort of her own room, armchair apocalypse, right, she's sitting there watching it happen, she's not participating, with this kind of wicked delight on what the narrator calls um, the undermining, the rotting and the collapse of the city in front of her. Lessing's narrator then discerns that this new post-civilised society actually offers modes of solidarity, non-alienated life, finally able to shape genuinely democratic instances of collective fulfilment. The lumpen proletariat Ryan family, um, I think, d describe this perhaps the best. Um, and they are described by the narrator as representing, quote, an earlier life of mankind which would rule, disciplined but democratic, when these people were at their best, even a child's voice was listened to with respect. All property worries gone, all sexual taboos gone, except for the new ones. But new ones are always more bearable than the old, don't you find? All problems shared and carried in common, free, free at last from what was left of, quote, civilization and its burdens. So that gleefulness of the narrator, I think, is quite telling. This idea of the freedom that Apocalypse might deliver is examined in Emma Tennant's satirical novella about the destruction of London, The Time of the Crack, completely overlooked in scholarship, uh, a glorious addition to our small corpus of texts, and raises this question of what do we do about comic apocalypses. Um, Tennant herself has interesting links with the science fiction new wave, um, including figures like J.G. Ballard, uh, Michael Moorcock, Hilary Bailey, uh, and, and other figures, Pamela Sargent, Angela Carter, and so on. So she's a very interesting figure, but for some reason, perhaps because it's a comedy about apocalypse, this novel um, tends to be ignored in academic criticism. It's a really strange text, a novella. It's a mix of a kind of bourgeois novel of manners. It's a bit of cosy catastrophe. It's got aspects of feminist magical realism. It's got bits of carnivalesque reminiscent of Angela Carter. Um, and Tennant had been publishing some of Carter's work in this literary magazine, Bananas, that she uh, edited. And a surreal reinvention of a French farce. And so, um, really what happens then is a crack appears in the Thames. It causes power cuts, everyone is plunged into darkness, 
the electricity cuts out. There's um, a, a fun fair at Hyde Park. Um, and so suddenly the electricity cuts out at this moment of apocalyptic rupture. All of the dodgems start crashing into each other and start a fire. Um, and, uh, and there are various posited uh, reasons for why the apocalypse might have been caused, um, including climate change, the southern movement of ice flows from the Arctic, but also, let's not forget, the devilish machinations of the Americans, which probably caused it. And as we saw in Jeffrey's naturalist vision of futurity in After London, there is beauty in this destruction. The ruins of London, the omniscient narrator observes, had never looked more beautiful than now. The crescents of South Kensington, no more than jaw formations in which teeth, white teeth had, uh, had once stood white and strong. The Natural History Museum as skeletal and forbidding as its prehistoric contents. So beauty abounds here, but so does comedic potential. The main part of the plot, which I didn't tell you yet, is that at this fun fair, and really the main part of the ensemble cast of characters, are um, a bunch of psychiatrists having a convention of psychiatry um, in which they have kind of literalised Freud's regression theory, and they've somehow hypnotised their patients into a series of different states, um, uh, childish regressive states, even in utero, and they're having to kind of shepherd these poor patients um, wheezing and groaning and making childish noises around um, the theme park. And actually, Apocalypse doesn't... They don't miss a beat. It doesn't put them out at all. I won't read you all of this quote, but it, but it is a great passage. Um, Hyde Park was, of course, unrecognisable. We've got twisted metal, crashed cars, a giant mound of earth and the debris. And then the two psychoanalysts are sort of stepping with care through this. Um, and, and sort of saying, this is good for the creative process, this is going to help our patients. They don't have any toys, but that's fine, they're going to have to learn how to use their imaginations. The analysts, tiptoeing like two Father Christmases, leaving the nursery, left the hospital and struck off in the direction of Westminster. Although some of the buildings seemed to have lost their roofs, the disaster had been less complete here. Uh, and then one of them says to the other, we're in luck. If you look at the situation objectively, this is just the kind of traumatic shock the society needs to jolt it out of its complacency. <laughs> so what is described as this death rattle of capitalism becomes an enjoyable symbol of the end times, but specifically the end times of capital. Rich men's houses become helpless as abandoned toy accordions. And tenants' own experiences growing up in an aristocratic family in swinging 60s in the London. She worked for Vogue magazine uh, and other magazines. She went to finishing school. She knew the world of which she spoke, um, of, of almost exclusively upper-class and bourgeois characters. They're, they're evident in, in the kinds of um, people that we find in this text. And for all of the different characters, the apocalypse offers a number of new beginnings. So for the women of the text... There's no more washing up, there's no more frilly aprons, there's no more serving drinks dressed as rabbits because some of the characters are playboy bunnies. They can rip off their false eyelashes and their stilettos and they march in a women's march led by a charismatic figure called Medea to a new start, chanting, no more of that, our time is come. For the psychoanalysts, this cataclysm then offers an opportunity without nuclear family relationships to form new life structures. It's a very, very detached opinion. And for an ecologist, heady with dreams of Robinson Crusoe and survivalism in a, Rousseauian, in a Rousseauian state of nature, the crack represents a society in which ecology and sociology went hand in hand, communism, without a dictatorship. For a group of scientists trapped in the dome of the British Museum reading room, the catastrophe inevitably is going to alter their politics. And those who had even until very recently held liberal or high Tory views were now unashamedly left-wing and almost communist, shouting capitalist hyena, imperialist lackey. And so you've got all of these different figures marching around London sort of shouting at each other. But the novel ends in a really ambiguous way. I mean, I can't help thinking that Emma Tennant sort of got bored and didn't finish it properly, but that also endears it to me somewhat. It ends with this, the ecologist stuck in a hot air balloon he cannot control. He can't land in the women's colony with all of its utopian ambitions of, of solving the gender division of labour. He can't land in the new capitalist empire that this industrialist has built on the other side of the river. And so he just sort of drifts off across the sea towards France, and we never find out what happened. It's ripe for a serial, I think, this novel. 
So what are we supposed to make of it? It ends pretty abruptly. It doesn't even have, as we found in Wells's War of the Worlds, the benefits of a didactic or moralising critique. The closest we come to some kind of socio-political message is found in that exchange between the two psychoanalysts about the beneficial after-effects of jolting capitalist society out of its narcissistic complacency and its endless self-regard. But, as I mentioned, this message is rather muted by the delivery from these two characters, who are obviously comedic, uh, comedic <laughs> rather, and ridiculous, and therefore it undermines any kind of serious political invective. Perhaps then, as Susan Sontag suggests, it's our readerly enjoyment itself and on its own terms which contains the seeds of a critical reflection upon Tennant's own time in the 1970s. And of course, we mustn't forget, this brings us back to the point about the cosy catastrophe having certain taboo subjects like real history in the 1970s or the 1960s. Um, we mustn't forget that this is a time of the pervasive threat of nuclear annihilation, a thermonuclear context, the Vietnam War, the 1970s oil crises, economic recession, Britain's industrial decline, Heath's war with the unions, resultant food shortages, blackouts. It was an apocalyptic time in real life. But in the manner of the cosy catastrophe, this entire context is absent from this deliciously enjoyable um, and seemingly quite superficial novella, The Time of the Crack which instead uses its generic hybridity as a comedy of manners, a speculative vision of the future, some kind of bizarre surrealist psychodrama, to transcend the concerns of the time, both at the banal level and at the kind of apocalyptic level, into something perhaps a bit more ambiguous. So, in drawing to a close for the last uh, couple of minutes, I'll skip through this a bit quickly, sorry. There have, of course, been a huge number of apocalyptic visions of London's destruction in the contemporary period. This is just a sample of, of, of a number of really interesting and important texts that would include Ian Banks' Walking on Glass back in the 80s, um, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, I believe there was a panel on this novel, Michael Moorcock's Mother London and the sequel King of the City, China Mieville's Gothic Urban Fantasy King Rat, and perhaps also his um, Perdido Street Station and... Um, uh, uh, that kind of trilogy of new weird novels um, which he described as being set in a chaos-fucked Victorian London uh, my favourite quote Ben Aronovich's Rivers of London and then more recently Paul Cornell's London Falling Victoria Schwab who I think we have with us today and her series which began with A Darker Shade of Magic in 2015 there's also been a deluge, to pardon the pun, of novels dealing with eco-catastrophe um, set in London. And so a good example of this is Maggie G's The Flood, which builds on her earlier text, The Burning Book and the Ice People. Uh, and also perhaps uh, a recent example of apocalyptic cataclysm visited upon London is Julie Myerson's 2011 text, Then. Uh, an unreliable narrator because she suffers from amnesia, because she's surviving in some kind of derelict office block, and because she's con continuously contradicted by other diverging witness accounts of what's really going on. But just as a quick point in passing to draw to a conclusion, I thought the example of Will Self's The Book of Day from 2006 would make an interesting counterpoint and an interesting comparative text with Emma Tennant's The Time of the Crack as an example, I'm saying, of comic apocalypse. Will Self's text is, is perhaps a good example of apocalyptic satire. Um, Magdalena Mazinska has a really interesting article about uh, what she calls urban visionary satire. Perhaps some of you know it. Um, and she's talking here about Martin Amos, but also Will Self, um, China Mieville, and I think she mentions Maggie G. And she picks out in London, she says, in the last two decades of the 20th century, we witness the emergence of a new type of fiction that draws on the interconnected traditions of realist, satirical and fantastic writing to produce a generic hybrid, the urban visionary satire. And I think this neatly picks up on the point about um, generic and readerly expectations when it comes to genre and how some of these contemporary texts are really playing on very sophisticated um, readerships who know their canons and know their texts and know when something is being subverted. But does the satirical apocalypse have a serious message? I think for me one of the most interesting moments in the Book of Dave is this kind of moment of the great wave of the um, tsunami uh, and it's described here. The great wave came on thrusting before it a scurf of beakers, stirrers, spigots, tubes, toy soldiers, disposable razors, computer disc cases, pill bottles, swazzle sticks, 
tongue depressors, hypodermic syringes, tin can webbing. I'm not going to go on mainly because I can't say all of those things quickly enough. Tupperware containers, plastics. And the shock here, of course, is that this great wave, um, this flooding of London, this apocalyptic deluge, is not the final resounding gesture of global warming or um, irreversible eco-catastrophe that we might expect, but actually is itself a satirical invective. It is a wave of, of um, self-satire against uh, what he calls moribund consumerism. It's his angry cry against a society awash with spectacle and simulacra, this tsunami of insatiable consumerist surfaces, the importation of plastic, senseless commodities, and the inevitable product of a culture, he says, predicated upon the straight-jacketing of efficient psychological functioning through neuropharmacology. So, to conclude... Apocalypse, as we've seen, in its satirical and its comedic modes, thus yields a serious message and uses these farcical or comedic flourishes to bring popular attention to broader questions of societal change. And I've highlighted things like consumerism um, uh, and, and class relations, as a good Marxist should. As China Mieville writes in um, his short text, London's Overthrow, London has always been an apocalyptic city, and I quote... This is an era of CGI end times porn. But London's destructions, dreamed up and real, started a long time ago. It's been drowned, ruined by war, overgrown, burned up, split in two, filled with hungry dead, endlessly emptied. And this um, short text, London's Overthrow, came out of an experience um, Mieville had when he was uh, walking with a group led by the writer Ian Sinclair. And I think Laura Oldfield um, Ford was also part of that group. Uh, and they were thinking about questions of gentrification, privatisation, the securitisation of public space in London, how it's choking and destroying the vitality of the city. And the short text media, uh, meditates on things like the 2011 riots and the Occupy movement and austerity politics more broadly. So it reminds us really of the real and, um, and the fictional apocalypses that have been visited upon London for many centuries We've had real events like the plague and the Great Fire. We've had the bombings in the Second World War and the Blitz. We've had the more recent bombings uh, in July 2005. And most recently, we've experienced the Grenfell Tower Fire. But we've also had countless um, imaginary literary and popular texts of apocalypse. And perhaps then, as China Mieville suggests, London might even be considered an apocalyptic city. Thank you very much.